Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Aaron. I hope that everyone in the United States had a good Memorial Day weekend and that the uh, those of you in the rest of the world had a good time as well. I'm going to continue with my series on the old WASP establishment in the United States, probably coming up to the end of it. I think I only have one more after today. But first, I want to give a, a promo uh, for myself here. Uh, if you haven't yet done so, please consider picking up a copy of Uh, of my translation of the book Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Uh, Owen was a Puritan uh, in England writing in the 1600s, talking about how to conquer sin in your life through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a book that has been touted by, I mean, a who's who of people, Tim Keller, John Piper. People keep talking about how influential this book is, but it's very difficult to read because it's written in Uh, obsolete English, sort of like trying to read Shakespeare, and the guy really wasn't a great writer. So what I did is I took the book and I translated it into a modern English vernacular that's very easy uh, to understand. So check it out, uh, The Mortification to Sin, translated by yours truly. Uh, The ratings keep rolling in. We're up to 45 ratings, five-star rating, and uh, people are liking this. So uh, especially if you're a Protestant, I'll just warn you, Owen is a little anti-Catholic, uh, so you might want to keep that in mind. But if you're a Protestant, uh, please check it out. It'd be great uh, for individual or small group study purposes. I want to talk a little bit again about the implications of the decline of the WASP establishment in America. And, you know, I talked a little bit about it in general, some of the, some of them. And, and I want to really try to make it clear through talking about a particular individual uh, by the name of J. Irwin Miller. Now, if you're from Indiana, you've probably heard of Miller, uh, but uh, if you're not, you may you may not. But Miller was essentially the patriarch of the town of Columbus, Indiana, and he was the CEO of a company called Cummins Engine, which is the largest diesel engine manufacturer in the world. Was then, still is, still a Fortune 500 company based in Columbus today. And what I think is really interesting uh, about Miller and Columbus is that Columbus is essentially the Rust Belt city that never rusted. That is to say, it was a Midwest small industrial city, almost small town, uh, almost entirely based around industry that has really never gone through a period of decline uh, like so many other places. And today it's still a, kind of a fairly prosperous place. Now you say, well, Aaron, of course it's prosperous. It's got a Fortune 500 company headquartered there, which is true that it does. Well, you know, lots of places had Fortune 500 companies headquartered there uh, and and went down the tubes. Uh, so uh, that's not by itself, uh, you know, an indicator. What I find interesting, too, is that uh, why it, why was it that this company was able to sustain itself there uh, and and not go out of business, not relocate? And some of that has to do with programs Miller undertook. It's also the case, you know, Columbus had other companies that were there. Uh, There was a Fortune 500 uh, uh, auto parts manufacturer called Arvin Industries there. They got merged away and went out of business. So imagine you're a company with, town with two Fortune 500 companies. One of them gets bought out and shut down, and you almost don't miss a beat. 
And if you look at Columbus, it's also notable that it's there's no university there. So there's like a branch location of a branch campus of Indiana University that has uh, some some uh, some things there. But this was not a college town, so it's not like it was sitting on all these other assets. It actually really still is a manufacturing town today. In fact, there's been a tremendous amount of foreign direct investment. Last I checked, they had more Japanese plants than any other uh, town in the, in the state of Indiana other than Indianapolis. Uh, there's German companies there, Chinese companies, French companies, Canadian companies, etc. Lots of actual manufacturing really is going on in this town. And it's also notable for its collection of world-class modern architecture. It has one of the best collections of modern architecture in the world. Uh, in fact, the American Institute of Architects rates Columbus as the sixth best architectural destination in the United States. Uh, there's buildings by Eliel and Aero uh, Saarinen, Cesar Pelli, I.M. Pei, Harry Weiss, all kinds of people uh, who are there. And then again, then this it comes from Miller, who was uh, the head of the town. And so uh, Miller, J. Irwin Miller, uh, they say that, um, uh, you, you know, a wasp is someone whose first name is a last name. Well, in the case of Miller, it, it was his, his middle name, which is what he went by, Irwin, uh, that was actually a last name. So uh, it, his, his the family was originally the Irwin family, and it's now referred to often as the Irwin Sweeney Miller family. And he was uh, actually the fourth generation patriarch of that family. That's how far back they went in in Columbus as the first family um, of that town. And um, so, you know, he'd been there for a long time. This has big implications because when you are born uh, as, you know, kind of the, the male heir of the first family of a town that's been there for generations, that owns the largest local bank, that essentially controls the largest industrial corporation, has another business empire, you were born into a completely secure social status. You don't have to worry, uh, again, about trying to figure out how to climb the, the pole to get the status to work your way up through the ranks. You're essentially born directly at the top. You know, so that just has people who are in that situation just have an ease about them that's hard to replicate. And, you know, I even recognize it today in people who are the children of wealthy people. You know, they don't even necessarily uh, all of them have like the top social status, uh, you know, as, as it would have been in the case in, you know, in Miller's era where social class counted for a lot. And, you know, maybe being new money, you could still be sort of gauche, so to speak. But um, you know, you'll see it. I mean, you know, I, I know I went to uh, I worked with a guy who is the the son of the, of the president of the largest bank in a town in Michigan. Uh, I, I uh, was walked to work with a guy who his dad was the, the number two guy at a Fortune 500 company. And these guys who were just raised in wealthy households just have an air and an ease about them. Uh, that I will never have. You know, the, the 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 people who you know who who kind of are, have you know, come out of the sticks are never going to have that sense of uh, you know self confidence. Uh, they're not just not going to be as confident around other people in that ever, ever. You know, although you know maybe their kids or grandkids will. So, but so he comes in. He's he's he never has to worry about acquiring social status, and because his family has been multi generationally the first family of this town, uh, they were. You know, his he sort of had this confidence and like, yeah, it's my sort of right 
to set the direction around here. I, I own the biggest, you know, I'm going to run the biggest bank. I want to run the biggest company. He ended up becoming the CEO of Cummins Engine for many years. He's like, yeah, I, it's right and natural that I should kind of be um, running the show. And we also see that, you know, because he came from that background, he was able to get, you know, a truly elite first-rate education from an early age, right? He didn't go to a third-tier, you know, third-tier school, third-tier university. And so uh, we'll see We'll see something about that. And so one of the things that we see is he was really the heir to this older liberal Republican WASP tradition that is essentially now extinct in America. And, uh, you know, I always think of liberal Republicans and how they were portrayed during my life uh, as sort of movement conservatism completed the assimilation uh, of the Republican Party. And they were always viewed as sort of the bad guys. Oh, you know, Lowell Weicker or, uh, you know, Lincoln Chafee and people like that. And you still hear it. Oh, you know, some senator from Maine, she's terrible. And liberal Northeasterners. And so this, this, you know, the conservatives who sort of took over the Republican Party um, have really sort of, you know, made it seem like the liberal Republican tradition uh, was was a ba- you know, bad. And, you know, they weren't they weren't necessarily great. Always. You often hear them called Rockefeller Republicans after Nelson Rockefeller. Well, you know, Nelson Rockefeller was like down in South America, probably like toppling regimes and stuff like that, doing work for kind of the deep state, if you will. He also, when he was governor of New York, uh, you know, kind of made the bad bargain that uh, to this day sort of plagues the Port Authority. So these guys had some problems. I'm not going to say that they were perfect, but it's really interesting to contrast how they thought about the world. You know, those elite, um, you know, kind of liberal Republicans, how they thought about the world in contrast to how, um, you know, today's sort of, you know, Republican elite thinks about it. And so one of the things that Miller did when he became the CEO of Cummins Engine, he said, look, we're an engineering-based company, and we're going to need to be able to recruit high-talent people to come to Columbus, Indiana. This is a small town, so right away he understood recruiting was going to be a challenge. So what he said was, we have to show potential recruits that this is a great place to raise a family. So one of the things that he did was he said, I am going to fund the architectural fees uh, for new schools in the community. He said, look, I'll pay all the architect's fees for schools if you pick an architect off my list. And so who were the architects that he picked? You know, he picked, again, Aero Saarinen, uh, Cesar Pelli, a who's who of modern architects that he had met, um, you know, along the way, some of them at Yale, when he was at Yale, et cetera. We'll talk more about his education. And so this this became the root of the architectural program there when essentially Cummins uh, itself... And, and him, he, they funded the architectural fees for all these incredible public buildings, as well as, you know, Cummins facilities, bank offices, things like that from, the, from their family firms that have created an incredible architectural legacy there. And I think that the key originally was like, I want people to come here and see amazing school buildings. No, no, the schools must be good. It's hard to show what goes on in the classroom, but you can show what the building looks like. Uh, but, you know, they put a lot of money into the community at a time when, quite frankly, most industrial communities were just thought it was all about good jobs. The cities were very dirty, polluted. You know, they weren't really investing uh, in their community. So uh, one of the things that happened was Cummins built a golf course, a public golf course for the city and put a million dollars into it, I think, back in when a million dollars meant something. And at the dedication, he said this, and I want you to think about a corporate CEO saying this, 
uh, versus, you know, how sort of a conservative today would think. He said, quote, why should an industrial company organized for profit think it a good and right thing to take one million and more of that profit and give it to this community in the form of this golf course and clubhouse? Why instead isn't Cummins, the largest taxpayer in the country, spending the same energy to try to get its taxes reduced, the cost of education cut, the cost of city government cut, less money spent on streets and utilities and schools? The answer is that we should like to see this community come not to be the cheapest community in America, but the best community of its size in the country, unquote. And again, it's just hard to imagine, right, somebody saying like that today. But this came out of, again, his the ethos that came from his WASP upbringing. And in fact, Miller was sort of an example of some of the trends that uh, Baltzell talked about in Philadelphia Gentleman. In Philadelphia Gentleman, he talked about how he went from this sort of a local upper class to a national upper class during the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Well, what we see with with the uh, Irwin Sweeney Miller family is that they are sort of joining the party late. So, uh, for example, uh, his generation, Miller's generation, was the first generation to go out east to school. So he went to boarding school at Taft School in Connecticut and also, his family was very deeply tied to Butler University in Indianapolis. Uh, you may, you know, be familiar with their basketball team, which has had some success in, you know, the recent years. And Butler was the originally a denominational school of the Disciples of Christ denomination. Uh, you often see the Christian Church; it's, they're known as Christian churches uh, today. It was part of this Campbellite movement, and multiple of. Um, Miller's uh, uh, ancestors had been ministers uh, in in this tradition. They were very tightly tied to it. They went to the school. I think some of them taught at the school. They gave a ton of money to the school. Uh, But Miller, J. Irwin Miller himself, did not go there. He was the first to not go there and instead went to Yale. And so we see that they're positioning him to take his place in the national upper class, which indeed he did. He got to know all these famous architects and um, he also, you know, had entree into all the movers and shakers uh, in America. So he, you know, he, if you read Jeffrey Cobb Services book, The Guardians, uh, which, you know, I've made mention in the past and, you know, R.R. Uh, Reno has been doing at first things, uh, you know, Miller is is a player and some of the stuff that's going on in there. He's not one of the feature uh, people, but when John Lindsay is flirting with running for president, I think it's Miller who's kicking some money to his campaign. And so he's he's very involved with the movers and shakers of society. So he served on the boards of AT&T, Chemical Bank, and other companies. And he was also on the boards of the most elite institutions in the United States. He was on the board of Yale. He was on the board of the Ford Foundation. He was on the board of the Museum of Modern Art. Right. So this guy was really playing a key role. Another thing that he did, you know, he never, like a lot of... um. Unlike the, the the other kind of most majority of the wasps who over time, you know, assimilated to Episcopalianism, he stayed his whole life in this Disciples of Christ uh, religious tradition, but he was very involved in, in the ecumenical movement in the National Council of Churches. And in fact, Miller was the first um, lay president of the National Council of Churches. And in that role, he really played a key role in helping get the Civil Rights Act passed back in the 60s. He also 
uh, you know, was one of the first companies to divest, you know, Comets were the first companies to divest out of South Africa in response to apartheid and, and a lot of what was going on there. He also played a big role in getting civil rights ordinances passed in Columbus, which he could basically tell them, oh, guys, you got to kind of do this because I sort of own this town, uh, which those guys did. So this was a guy who was, I mean, he was this Hoosier guy. People think of him as this, you know, Hoosier guy here. They don't even think about this idea that he had this massive national role uh, in the country, uh, you know, among the establishment wasp elites, the nation in that era, that entire aspect of his life is completely ignored in Indiana. Um, and, and so you you uh, you end up with uh, just people who think about his architecture and they think about Cummins and they think about Columbus. And I'll occasionally quote one of, you know, many of his eminently quotable quips like, uh, a mediocrity is expensive. He likes to say about that. Why do we build first class stuff in, in Columbus? Because, in a, you know, mediocrities are expensive uh, in the long term. But, uh, you know, when I, I read this uh, very short biography of him on Indiana University Press, called, uh, I can't remember the title of it. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's by a woman named Nancy Kriplin. And it was really, you know, astonishing. Like, wow, this guy is, he was kind of a big deal in the country. In fact, in 1967, he was on the cover of Esquire magazine with the caption, this man ought to be the next president of the United States. And uh, the article, I'll link to it in the show notes, is actually online for free. You can read it. it. It's just an incredible interview with him. And, um, you know, there's like there's like a long preamble where they talk about all the slim pickings on offer in the 68 presidential election. Like, man, is this the best we have? And here's this like, you know. Guy Miller, and they, just the the way that he talks, you should listen to this. You should read this interview, and listen to what he has to say on all sorts of topics. And you're like, wow. They were thinking even back then, why don't we have leaders like this in America? And you know, you might say today, wow, why don't we have leaders like this today? And the reason we don't have leaders like this today, leaders that are not taking money out of their community but putting money into their community, people who are you know, uh, you know, taking uh, taking things forward, not just nostalgic, backward-looking leaders, but ones who are on the leading edge of the arts, ones that are on the leading edge of engineering technology, you know, ones that are investing in their own community. In part, that's because the culture-bearing class that created people like Miller, this WASP class, no longer uh, really exists as a material force in our society today. And again, I think it's important to note that not not all of those guys were like Miller, right? There were plenty of people who were, in fact, vicious anti-Semites. I think there's this um, there, there's this uh, one uh, writer on the internet, uh, Steve Saylor. Uh, you know, he's kind of a you know right wing writer. That a lot of people read. And he's he's always promoting this idea that there really wasn't that much anti-Semitism, uh, and that uh, a lot of the the uh, Jewish memories of anti-Semitism were really when the German Jews discriminated against the East German European Jews. Well, there, that did happen. There was this big split within the Jewish community between these, uh, you know, very wealthy, uh, culturally sophisticated Germans and the, the new arrivals. But, I mean, it was the case. I mean, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. If you were Jewish, you were not getting in a white shoe law firm. You were not working in the premier Wall Street firms. Um, you know, you were not you know, going to get invited into any of these clubs. You were going to have a lot of problems in your corporate career. Um, so, you know, I, I get some pushback on that, but I think I think it's pretty clear, especially when you start reading the quotes from some of these people and people look into it. And there was definitely, you know, a lot of anti-Semitism, for example. Nevertheless, there was there was a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of positive qualities that came out of these people. And they're the, pe- they're the people who built this country. 
quite frankly. And so we want to know, like, why aren't we doing the sorts of things that we did back in the past to build this country? It's because, well, the people who did that aren't, aren't running the country anymore. It's people like me, right, from, you know, Catholic peasant stock. And, you know, as somebody who comes from Catholic peasant stock on both sides of my family, even though I'm Protestant today, I got to look and say, wow, what have we really done, uh, you know, uh, for our turn in America? And so it's a little bit humbling. It's a little bit humbling uh, to think about them. And so I think if you read up, um, I'll put some links. Uh, I'll put a link uh, in the show notes to an article in The Atlantic that I wrote about um, Miller and Columbus. We'll give you a little bit of a background uh, on the town. And um, and uh, you'll also put a piece to this, a link to this Esquire piece and a link to this um this biography of him that'll give you a little bit of a flavor. And the last thing I want to to just mention about some of, uh, of these guys and like how different they were from people today in like weird ways. I just got done reading a uh, new biography uh, of Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. called The Last Brahmin, right? So this is a guy from the most prestigious family in New England uh, in, in the Boston area and, um, you know, he, he, there have been like five senators uh, from from the you know, from the Cabot Lodge family going back to the Revolutionary uh, period. You know, his grandfather Henry Cabot Lodge Senior was actually his grandfather, and his father had been a senator. And you know, his life you know it's, it's it's a long life, but you know, he was in public service. He was a senator. He fought in World War. II. He resigned his Senate seat to go fight in World War II. I mean, can you imagine anyone today uh, doing that? Then he was the ambassador to the United Nations under Eisenhower. He basically led the draft Eisenhower movement. So if you want to know why uh, Eisenhower was president, you, know, you could think Lodge. He was also the ambassador to South Vietnam and, you know, is is implicated in a lot of the negative things that happened in Vietnam. So he, he has some some failures as well. And so he, he basically had like a multi, multi-decade career in public service. And one of the things that really struck me was that at the end of this book, they mention that he's in retirement and he's selling off artwork, family artwork in his house to raise funds. Now, I'm sure he wasn't broke, uh, but it's like, wow, here's a guy who, after decades in public service, actually came out poorer on the other end, such that he's selling off family heirlooms to stay afloat. And I was really struck, too, by uh, Jeffrey Cabo Service's book. That's a theme in his book as well, that... Um, you know, uh, Kingman Brewster, the main character in that book, was the president of Yale. I think when he was sort of in semi-retirement uh, in England, you know, he was a little bit pinched. He was not rolling in cash. And John Lindsay, another character in the book, uh, again, a character that a lot of conser- a lot of Republicans today always want to slam you know, John Lindsay as this incompetent mayor of New York, and he couldn't clear the streets in a blizzard. Well, you know, we, there's there's certainly some you know uh, ambivalent uh, you know ambivalence about his his, uh, his tenure in New York City, but he was also a congressman, and you know he actually did some some good things in New York as well, which is often overlooked. But anyway, John Lindsay almost went bankrupt and had to be bailed out by Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> ultimately. So here are this multiple of these guys who spend a long time in essentially public service, totally incorruptible, to- totally public spirited even when they, you know, often made, you know, maybe some bad decisions, but they come out poorer on the other end. And that's one of the things that that's that's weird about these these wasps. I mean, a lot of these families were essentially run down there. They they weren't wealthy. I mean, they were certainly, you know, yes, they were maybe top 1% in some respects, but they didn't have so much money that they could just spend without end. They weren't, plutocratic, they no longer had plutocratic wealth. There were so many heirs, 
so many multiplications of errors, and they were so disconnected from their businesses that they essentially ran down many of their family fortunes completely uh, by the end of their lives. And I just think about that. It, it would just be impossible today to conceive of someone spending decades in public service or even less time than that and not coming out on the other end obscenely enriched. And to think that these guys went into went into public service and came out essentially a lot poorer on the other side of it when they, frankly, probably should have been making money on Wall Street or in the law business or something like that. They probably should have focused on making money because their family fortunes were no longer sufficient to really enable them to do this. That's pretty That's pretty amazing, pretty telling. And Miller, he was rare in that he actually was the CEO of a, a family-controlled gigantic corporation. Again, that was the old model before the the, uh, the the WAS switched to the trust model. His family built their money a little bit later. Uh, but again, he put a lot more into the public sector than he took out of it. Today, you know, you see these billionaires, they're much more likely to be taking money out of their community than they are putting it in. And yes, we always hear about their charitable contributions and this and that, but start adding up all, all of the tax subsidies uh, that they're getting, all the special deals uh, that they're getting, and you'll see that um, you know their philanthropy isn't always what what it's made out to be. And so it'd be interesting. I think it'd be interesting to read again this Esquire piece, these other pieces, and just look at a guy like J. Irwin Miller. Look at Columbus, the impact that he had on that community to essentially put it on a completely different trajectory from the rest of the Midwest. And we just see that this kind of leadership has gone essentially completely extinct in America. And there is something that we lost with the loss of that tradition. Not just, you know, you can think of it as the WASP tradition, you can think of it as the liberal Republican tradition, whatever it is. But anyhow, uh, that's, uh, that's a wrap for this week. If you haven't yet, please do leave a rating on iTunes. I really appreciate all the ratings and reviews people are listening. Next week, I'm probably going to wrap up this series with a look at a, a different kind of conservatism. You know, how Baltzell's conservatism, and he was a conservative, differs from what we think of as conservatism today. In the meantime, take care.